Oh, good to see you. Hi, good to see you all. Good morning. Good morning. Thought we'd surprise you by starting a minute early. How about that? Take your time. You know, I noticed, Mr. Speaker, that I'm going to introduce you and do the welcome remarks here in a second, but I just observed that at about 5 o'clock yesterday, the RSVPs for this event mysteriously went up. <laughs> Not surprised that we have a full house today. Um, well, welcome. I'm Evan Smith. I'm the CEO of the Texas Tribune. On behalf of my colleagues, I want to welcome you to day two of the Texas Tribune Festival. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> We have an irresistible program planned for you here in the track on the 2018 election cycle and all across campus. You have a full day of one-on-one -on -one conversations and panel discussions ahead of you. It all begins now. I hope you enjoy it. This morning, I'm honored to have with me for the fourth Tribune Festival appearance in the last five years, the Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives, <laughs> the Honorable Joe Strauss. Thank you. Although, um, th this is not in the script, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this. Let it be said that while some elected officials these days believe it is not their responsibility to be in front of the press and in front of the public, the speaker always shows up. And I want to acknowledge that and thank you. Thank you. The speaker is a San Antonio Republican who first won his House District 121 seat in a special election in February 2005, and he was first chosen by his colleagues to lead them in 2009. If you do the math, that means he's in his fifth term as presiding officer of the House, which puts him in the company of Pete Laney and Gib Lewis as the longest serving speaker in Texas history. Already, Speaker Strauss has said he plans to go for six, although as I said as of late yesterday, it appears his run may not be unopposed. More about that momentarily. A native of San Antonio and a fifth-generation Texan, Speaker Strauss has an undergraduate degree from Vanderbilt University. He has an insurance, investments, and executive benefits practice in his hometown. His entree into politics came more than 25 years ago when he worked in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and managed Lamar Smith's first campaign for Congress. This has been a hell of a legislative year and a hell of a political year. I can think of no one I'd rather have here to put it all into perspective and context and to look ahead to what comes next. Please join me in welcoming Speaker Joe Strauss. Thank you. Thank Mr. You Speaker, thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Speaker, I thought I'd give you a choice. I was going to bring one of those carnival wheels and spin and see where it landed, but we're going to do this a we different way. I'm going to give you a choice. We can talk to begin about the Confederacy, Donald Trump, or Phil King. You pick. <laughs> Where's that wheel? Okay. <laughs> Imagine a wheel that lands on Phil King. Um, <laughs> As you know, State Representative Phil King of Weatherford, a chairman of the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee, a Strauss chairman, underscore, underscore, mm -hmm. yesterday afternoon announced his intention to run for speaker. His statement was three paragraphs. Most people focused on the first paragraph, which said, I'm running for speaker. I focused on the second, and I'm going to do a dramatic reading of the second paragraph. <laughs> the role of the presiding officer, Mr. King said in his statement, is not to control the House, but rather to facilitate assist and empower all members to represent their districts, promote their ideas, and implement their policies. He does not call you out by name, um, but I will. Um, seems like he's taken a shot at you. Do you control the House? Is that your job, to control the House? No, it's my job to serve as a presiding officer and to have some management responsibilities. Right. Um, the Speaker does have influence, of course. Right. Um, but not but control. You don't no. pull levers behind a no, curtain. No, That's not no, no. I don't control the House. There are issues, relatively few, where I'm pretty outspoken. Right. Uh, there might have been one or two this last session or <laughs> I, so. I, I heard about that. I heard about that. Um, so, you, so you do not, as Speaker, believe it is your job to control the flow of legislation? Well, controlling... In terms of managing and making sure that we get through our work, yes. But, but in terms but, of, of approving everything that we do, uh, absolutely not. The House passes bills that I would never vote for. Right. The, past, the House kills bills that I would like to see enacted. Right. But I, I want to 
naturally, I want to drill down a little bit more on this. What I'm asking, because again, I'm, I'm going to stand in here for the people who have a beef with you and who are constantly criticizing you and often do so anonymously, but in any case, don't do so even if it's publicly to your face. I'm going to ask you about those things to your face, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to answer them. So the, 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 the knock on you, it is said, is that you instruct your committee chairs to smother legislation in committee before it ever gets to the floor of the House, giving you the deniability of say, being able to say, well, I don't actually control the flow of legislation. I, I just I run the House at the will of the members. You've said that many times to me and to others. And you appoint chairs, but that ultimately it is the chairs who decide how that goes. Do, sure. you, give, do, do you do that? No, I don't do it. And you can talk to the committee chairs. But what I do do, try to do, is appoint committee chairs who have good judgment. And... and let the process work. I think a lot of times people have to, and we've had governors with this, with this issue, everybody wants their bills to pass. Yep. But when you look at the pass rate, the percentage rate of bills that pass versus the ones that are introduced, it's a very low percentage. Right. And that's a fact of life and a process that was built to make it difficult to pass a bill. Is that a good That's thing? A pro- is, yes, it's a good it's, thing. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. If you're a right. limited government person, it's a wonderful thing. So the legislature exists in many respects not to pass legislation, but not to pass legislation. Well, to be deliberate about it, to have a process that right. filters yeah. and that um, gives, right. gives people plenty of time to think about right. something before you um, enact it into law or pass it through the So explicitly, chamber. on the ba- let's depict the bathroom bill as one of what I could name as many examples. You did not see Byron Cook, the chair of state affairs, across the room and give him that little sign like in the sting that Paul Newman <laughs> gave Robert Redford to say, ixnay on the athroom, Bill A. You did, you, you, you did not direct Chairman Cook to smother that bill any more than you directed Chairman Huberty to kill school choice. None of that happened. That's the conspiracy theory. I made, I made my views very clear about that particular issue. After, after, yes, after having listened to many faith leaders, listening to educators, listening to the law enforcement community, and listening to the business community that finally came together very strongly telling us that this would be an unnecessarily divisive and extremely damaging bill to pass for the Texas economy. Uh, Not to mention... Not to mention the, the, human, uh, the human dynamics of this, too, the human yeah. uh, dimension. So um, Did you pull I your think district? in the House we, yeah. we listened. We listened to right. those voices that were loud and clear and convincing. Yeah. And um, I'm, I know we did the right thing, and I've had it validated as I've traveled around the state and really um, out of state, too, talking to leaders mainly in the business community who have said, thank you for not stifling our plans to... Uh, continue to expand in your state. Right. Did you poll your district? Of course, you are one of 150 members. And so I wondered if you took the measure of your own district on this issue, as other members we know have said they did. I did not. Um, I spoke out of conviction and out of what I thought was the right thing to do. Right. I can tell you, having gotten out there on that issue, though, what followed was, in my mind, an unprecedented um, avalanche of very positive communication from people I represent, okay. thanking me for the position I took. So you feel like that, you made the right, that tells I'm, you you made the right call? I'm absolutely convinced. I'm right. in, I'm, my position is in the mainstream of Republican thinking. Yep. So back to this question of the chairs and the, the beef that people have with you. So you said, I pick people with judgment. You do not, just to say it out loud, you do not pick committee chairs who agree 100% with your legislative agenda. I don't know anybody in the House who agrees 100% with me. <laughs> okay. Do you believe now, members now, should... Yeah. Now, I will say, yes. you know, take, take school finance, uh, for example, which is a very broadly supported um, priority of the Texas House. It has right. been for several sessions now. I wouldn't appoint a chairman of public education or of the Appropriations Committee who was anti-public education. So to, to, to put that to a fine point, when Chairman Acock announced he planned to retire, you had an opening for the Public Education Committee. Question is, who is the 
speaker going to appoint, you would not have appointed, say, someone who was an advocate for school vouchers. Well, I wouldn't have appointed someone who was anti-public education. Do you see those things as the same? Well, it's, they're intertwined. But I think, you, I, I think some people can be pro-public okay. education and have an open mind on vouchers. On the bathroom bill or anything else, Mr. Speaker, do you believe members should represent their districts? Yes, I do. Right. So if, if I think you, members always ought to represent their districts. Well, but again, what, it, it, the, the criticism, I'm saying it's implied, but it's honestly explicit in, in Chairman King's statement of candidacy for the speakership, as it were, is that the role of the presiding officer is to empower all members to represent their districts. He seems to be suggesting that that's not happening now. He is suggesting that. But you think... And I'll, see, and I'll see you, you, you disagree. And I'll, you disagree. And, and I disagree. And, yeah. I, and I would submit in the last, the last five legislative sessions, the House members disagreed with that. Yeah. And so you don't begrudge any member who may disagree with you on an issue, but who polls his or her district and comes up with the finding that no. the people he or she represents say, no, we want this not. to happen. No, and I tell right. them to do what they think they should do for the people they represent. Unless, unless it violates their conscience. Have you talked to Phil King since yesterday? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. What did you yeah. say? You want to tell us about that conversation? Well, it was his. <laughs> it was a short chat. He, uh, he, called, he called me yesterday afternoon late. Um, he said he was uh, horrified that it had already gotten out. And I said, what's gotten out? <laughs> he said some blogger put out that I um, have filed for speaker and I wanted to tell you myself, so I'm sorry I didn't get to tell you myself. I consider us to be friends and yep. whatever. I say, okay, well, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> now, the, now, the difference, Mr. Speaker, between, uh, say, Ken Paxton or Scott Turner or any of the other people who over time have stepped forward to challenge you on the one hand, and Mr. King on the other hand, is that he is a Strauss chairman, as they refer to them, right? He's one of your, he's one of your guys. Mm -hmm. What happened? What do you think happened? I mean, you obviously had a good enough relationship with him and felt confident enough in his judgment and his belief in all things that, you know, again, understanding yeah. that you pick people with good judgment, to make him a, a chair. What, well, what happened to your relationship? Well, he's been in the House for a lot longer than I have, uh, have been, and um, you'd have to ask him that question, but um, I don't own this there's job. No, there's no... I don't, I don't own a, this job. You're, you're not aware of anything that happened, nothing precipitated. Nothing personal, no. Right. Um, or any kind of interference with the business he was trying to do in the house. But, okay. but you know, I take a, I, I don't own this job. I've been very honored and very privileged to have been supported by a strong majority of both Republicans and Democrats five right. times. That's a lot. Nobody's done more, as you said. And um, it's a real privilege to be in the position I'm in. I consider a speaker's election um, at least two elections away from now in 15 months. Well, we'll so, get to that in a second, actually. Yeah. Um, do you believe, uh, as has been suggested by certain members of your party and of your body, that the GOP caucus should choose the speaker? That, that's, this is not the first time this has been suggested, but there yeah. is a move afoot to have the caucus come together behind one candidate and to leave that room you know, in full-throated, unanimous support, and, and that's it. What do you think about that? Yeah, we'll do that just like the last time we tried it and it didn't happen. Um, <laughs> I think it's a bad idea. It was yeah, proven. So you think it should not happen. It was, it, proven, happen. Right. it was proven to be a bad idea in 2011 when I reluctantly went along with, at the time, the same, the same proposal. Yep. At that time, I not only had a huge majority support in the Republican caucus, and everyone pledged to go out and vote for the winner, which happened to be me. Um, 15, as I remember, broke that pledge. The state constitution doesn't say that the Republican caucus binds somebody to a speaker vote. Every member has a free vote when they get to the floor right. on the first day of the session. Fifteen of them who had agreed but were disappointed with the outcome voted against me anyway. Bailed on, bailed on the agreement. Yeah. So um, uh, you, if, and you're a Republican and you're a member of the caucus, presumably you get a vote on whether this is going to be the policy of the caucus. You will be a nay on that vote if, if, if it comes to it. I think it doesn't change the Texas Constitution. Right. If they want to change the Texas Constitution about the way the Speaker of the House is elected in our Texas right. um, legislature, they should do so. Do, do, do that. Uh, despite your wishes, is your read of the room that the caucus will ultimately vote to choose the Speaker? They can. I, it, really, it really isn't personally important to me. 
I'm fine either way, right. just as I was in 2011. I mean, I'm confident I am. Uh, as a practical matter, you think it's a bad idea. You think it's a bad idea. I think it's a bad idea. And just think of the, you know, I won't be speaker forever. Right. It just seems that way to some people. Uh, when I'm no longer speaker, will they still want to do it this way, or is this about me? And when I'm no longer speaker, it's still going to be a very bad idea. Right. Regardless I, be of I believe speaker, all 150 right? members of the Texas House have a vote, just as the Constitution says they do, and our, and our House rules uh, have a process for this. And I think we ought to keep it the way it is. Yeah. Do you think you have a majority of the Republicans in the caucus now supporting you? Yes. How do you know that? Because they know me and I know them. And a speaker who's served five sessions as speaker has to have a pretty good idea of where his right. votes are. The, the, the implied beef, again, not just from Chairman King, but from the people who oppose you, is that you are elected, God forbid, with the votes of Democrats. That, that, the, <laughs> that we, have to, we have to basically get rid of the influence of Democrats in the process of selecting a speaker by ensuring that the caucus chooses the speaker. Is there anything wrong with a Republican speaker getting the votes of Democrats? Not in my mind at all. I think there's something wrong with a system where not everybody's voices count. Um, and I'm a, I'm a lifelong proud Republican. As you said, I've, I've worked for two presidents. I've you were a Republican when some of the people criticizing you were still Democrats. That's, pro that's, prob that's, prob that's probably true. And I'm also, I'm also convinced that my, my way of thinking um, is in the mainstream of Republicanism, even today. Yep. Uh, there are factions and factions of factions that got off on these divisive wedge social issues that frankly don't excite me. Um, but, but I do believe that, um, and I'm very proud of the fact that that when I was first elected, we had a two-seat majority. We now have a, um, what is it, 40-seat 40, 40 majority. And I played a role in that. And I also chaired the Republican Legislative Campaign Committee, which helped build uh, Republican legislative majorities in a supermajority of states. Yep. I'm very comfortable with my place in the Republican Party. And I'm very comfortable uh, with my philosophy that invites people of the minority party into the discussion. Right. The... Um... <laughs> Last thing on this, there are rumors that there are going to be more candidates, that this is the, whether he's a stalking horse or a blocking back, you know, pick your preferred cliche, <laughs> that in the end we're going to see multiple candidates for speaker. Your response, if we were to ask you at that time about those candidates, would be no different than the response you're giving today. No, bring it. Bring hey, look, it. I, don't, I don't own it. Yeah. You don't care. It's a, it's a decision right. of the members, and I'm confident yep. that, uh, right. confident that, Nothing's changed. You said that we're two elections away from this being relevant. I want to ask you about those two elections. You have said definitively, I am running for speaker. Yeah, I've got people on the ground, filed, busy right. schedule as always. It's, um, That's happening. You know, the thing, the and thing, nothing will change that. I don't, I don't see it, but I, but I also always try to take my own advice that I give to other members. At, end, at the end of every session, yeah. inevitably, somebody's tired and frustrated and wondering whether it's really worth it or not anymore. Yep. Um, and they come to me and they ask me for my advice. And my advice is always go home, talk to your family, get connected in your community, get back into your business or whatever it is in your life, and give it some time to think, to think um, before you make a, a rash decision that you might, that you might uh, regret later. Right. And you have to remember, we were in session, what, seven of these nine months of this year. Correct. So, um, you know, I think it's good for everybody to take a little bit of a take, take a breather. breather. But yeah, I mean, it, I mean, and, and look, family comes first. Public service is very important to me, and I'm certainly intending to run. Yep. Um, and have um, to run for speaker to, or to run, to, run for speaker or run for re-election because that's part two of this question. Well, I mean, I wouldn't run for re-election if I didn't uh, think I'd have a leadership role. So yeah, I'm running, yeah. Say, say, so, say so that again. So I would not run for re-election if I did not think well, I, I had a leadership. I don't think I'd want to stay in the House if I wasn't the presiding officer after five terms as doing so. Right. So look, here's, um, I think it's um, most important is the message that I gave to the Republican members of the caucus two nights ago. Okay. Yes, I went to the Republican caucus. It was very well received, by the way. <laughs> and, I, um, and I told them that just as I always have in the last 
four cycles, I'll be out there um, having their back. Yep. I'll be raising the resources they need to be reelected. I'll be helping them tell the good stories that they have to tell to their constituents. Yep. And uh, we're ready to go. I want to just clarify what I heard to be sure that I got it right. You're saying if you determine between now and the election, primary, that you will not be speaker because enough Republicans have said they're not going to support you, you are going to decline to run for re-election. Is that what I heard you just say? No. You said, well, you said, well, hold on, hold on. Mr. Speaker, what you just said was, why would I go back to the House if I was not in a leadership position? If you know you're not going to be speaker, you just said, you, why would I go back to the House? Well, I feel very confident that I will be. Right, but I'm asking you, what if you're not? I don't think that way, Evan. Okay. <laughs> Fair. It will, it will come as no surprise to you that that is exactly how I think, actually. So, um, um, so um, I mean, I was going to ask you if you're running for re-election as part two, because there were all these reports of, you know, people said, well, well, the speakers, I think Peggy Feekhack initially, but then others had reported that you were running for re-election as speaker. And I said, well, is he running for re-election as state representative? Because that seems to be a precursor. And the, the question of that was a little muddy. I'm not sure no, it's- No, 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 yeah. here, here. Um, so help, help de-muddy it for me. <laughs> your plan, your yes. plan is to run for re-election to the House, I'm not period. Trying, yeah, I'm not trying to make this more complicated. Good. Yeah. I, I kind of am, but that's fine. But here, and here's, and people, yeah. people have put words in my mouth ever since I was first elected in 2009. Right. At that time, they said, some of the detractors said, he's a caretaker, he's only serving for two years. Yep. And then it became, after I was elected the second time speaker, it was, he's voluntarily term-limited himself, he'll be gone. So, it, you know, it's always somebody else. Only one we should listen me. to is you, that's it. Well, apparently not, I don't speak all that well, but <laughs> okay. it's a or, good place to start, or, I guess. Or we don't hear all that well is how it is. Um, so you alluded to the seven months that uh, people were in session. But, you know, I'm basically saying January through August, although there was a, an interregnum there in the middle. Is Texas better off for the work of the legislature, net-net, this year? I think we did a under underreported and I think underappreciated at this point uh, some of the really good things we did. They aren't necessarily the issues that get people all lathered up at party conventions, but um, we did outstanding work in CPS reforms yep. and in foster care. That's something I'm very personally proud of because it was very much a house priority. Uh, is is some very very good work in mental health care reforms. Right. And. It's, and it wasn't, that was a, that was a two-year process. We didn't just show up and say, here, let's do a mental health bill. Right. We, um, we appointed a, a committee of outstanding members, led very ably by Four Price, and Joe Moody from El Paso, and a whole committee of very committed, very good members of the House. Yep. And they, they prepared a hundred and something page report of very important findings from which many good bills Yep. Uh, were developed and most of them passed. And even in a very tough budget year where we had a significant budget shortfall, yep. we still found the resources to, um, to address our, our state mental hospitals that are falling apart. We found money for matching grants to help some of these um, uh, very effective uh, community programs that are working. We, found, we did work in jail diversions. And so these are the types of issues that I'm most proud of that make the real difference in people's lives. Uh, they don't poll all that well and the consultants don't say send brochures around because frankly, they don't get people hot and bothered. But the millions of people who are affected by mental health yep. uh, problems or their family members who do, yep. um, and worry about a family member who might be in, uh, you know, might be in danger of harming themselves or someone else now has a better chance or will have a better chance of getting the treatment they need. That's something to be really proud of. Um, let me not, good. <laughs> let me not take away from what you just said. CPS reform, very important, stated as an objective of the legislature, one of the rare bipartisan issues in this legislature. CPS reform largely accomplished as you promised it would be. Mental health's been a priority of yours, not just this session, but previous sessions, mm -hmm. although you did appoint the committee and uh, Chairman Price and Vice Chairman Moody did lead that effort, as you say, stipulated, period, paragraph. What else? What were the other we, accomplishments we, of this session? We rescued our retired teachers from catastrophic health care costs. Okay. Very important. And it was, 
and it was, it was the House that led the way on that. Um, we also, um, when the Senate budget came to us, it started in the Senate this time, they had draconian budget, budget cuts to higher education. The House thoughtfully worked through that and prevented that from happening. That's really important to young people. It's, it's, important, to the, it's important to the future economic yep. growth of this state, and I'm proud that we uh, did the thoughtful work there. Yeah. There are a number of issues, Mr. Speaker, and I know you know them. We've talked about them before. Um, you knew I'm going to bring them up on uh, issues that you cared a lot about going into the session where things were not accomplished. The reality is you accomplish... Hey, my, my batting average isn't better than anybody else's. Well, it's okay. I mean, it's not really on you so much. It's just I have a question about whether this is a session whose big takeaway is the things that were done or the things that were not done, both on the positive and negative side of the ledger. You could count as accomplishments keeping things that you don't want to be done from, from being done. I mean, there are people certainly, I don't know, if you, I, I think you basically said it, no bathroom bill passing you would count as an accomplishment. I count it as a uh, mistake we avoided. Well, you say it your way, I'll say it mine. Um, no school choice legislation, you would count as an accomplishment. I wouldn't say it's an accomplishment. I think the, what was more important than, than not passing school choice, what was more important and more of a disappointment uh, is that, that we couldn't prevail upon the Senate to, um, to pass a school finance reform bill that would have provided real property tax relief for our citizens. Why do you think that was, Mr. Speaker? Well, <clears throat> my view is they don't have an interest in it. Do you think the Senate does not have an interest in school finance? They haven't the last two sessions. They, I think, you know, before it was, well, let's wait till the court tells us that the, that the system's unconstitutional. Right. The House, the last two sessions, said we don't care what the court says. They said it was lawful but awful. And it is, and we know it, and our citizens know it, and they're burdened with very high school property taxes. They know the facts, and they're certainly learning the facts, yep. that the state's share of public school funding has dropped from 49% to 38 and going the wrong way. Right. And that's where most of our property taxes are paid. And yet, some of my friends in the legislature want to look the other way. And, uh, well, they want property it. tax reform, but they want a different kind of property tax reform. They want a different kind, yes. Yeah. And you didn't, you and the House did not cotton to what the Senate wanted on property tax reform either. You, no, may consider, we were you may consider not passing what the Senate wanted in the form of property tax reform itself to be an accomplishment. And all of that was to be negotiated together. Right. And we were willing to meet the Senate halfway on their goal that even Senator Betancourt admitted was only going to save property taxpayers 3 to $10 or something a month. Right. What was the obstacle to you getting on the same page with the Senate? And be specific, and please name names. Well, they, they weren't interested in school property taxes. Who's, who's they? Well, it doesn't matter. No, 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 no. I'll ask the questions I'll here. Say, I'll, uh, I'll say. Name names. Does it rhyme with Dan Patrick? Probably not, but because um, I think he, when he was chairman of the of the uh, of the education committee in the Senate, he, right. had, a, he had an interest in public schools. So I'm not going to. Well, you know, the lieutenant governor on the. Go there. I remember it was Halloween Day. We were together before the Greater Houston Partnership, and I, I know it was Halloween Day because I told him I was going to show up for the interview in a Joe Strauss mask. <laughs> um, I remember that. Uh, we had a conversation about the session to come. This was in 2016, and he said to me on that day with regard to school finance and school choice, no one without the other. He said, we're not gonna do school finance without school choice. True to his word, that's in fact what happened. Do you begrudge him that? His belief, and then the Senate's belief by extension, was that we should do reform as a package. We should reform finance, but also give people the opportunity to have more choice, however that can be defined. It's a continuum, I acknowledge. But that was his point. Do you begrudge him that? No, I don't begrudge him that, but I also never saw a serious, uh, I never saw a serious uh, counter to what the House had passed over there. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the Republicans and the degree to which Republicans are or are not on the same page in this legislature. I think, Mr. Speaker of the legislature, in this way, that the Democrats have a math problem but not a politics problem, and the Republicans have a politics problem but not a math problem. 
The Democrats are pretty much aligned on policy. They just don't have enough numbers in the legislature to get anything done or to prevent anything on their own. But the Republicans have more than enough people in both the House and the Senate to get anything they wanted done if they simply got on the same page. But they have a politics problem. That it is often the inability of Republicans to get along that prevents legislation from being passed. When I hear people in the Senate, conservatives say, we didn't get all the things that we wanted and it's those pesky Democrats, my response is, no, no, no. The reason you don't get everything you want is not because of Democrats, it's because of other Republicans. So I, I wonder if you could address this notion that the Republicans are in some way at war. And is that good or bad? Well, I do have a concern that our Republican majority um, could break into factions that could hurt our ability to maintain a majority, just the way the Democrats did years ago. Uh, and I think that would be a, I think that would be a, um, that would be tragic. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, in some respects, Mr. Speaker, it feels like a three-party state. There are the Democrats, there are the traditional business Republicans, call, I mean, moderate, I realize, is a four-letter word these days, but you call those Republicans whatever you want. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll use a, a six-letter word, word, Strauss Republicans. Um, and, then there are, and then there's the grassroots, the movement conservatives. It seems at, on some days like there are three parties and not two, and so I just wonder what is it going to take to get the two Republican parties of Texas which at the moment are running the state to get on the same page. Well, it's probably going to take thinking um, along the lines of former President Reagan, who used to say, your 80% friend is not a traitor. At the moment, if you're not with him 100%, you get a primary opponent. That's correct. 98% is not enough. When I went to school, 98% was an A+. Plus. Yes. <laughs> right? That's right. And, we yeah. do, and, and, you know, I think um, you can overstate the differences. Um, we do agree on a lot, and we do get a lot of things done. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're prepared, I mean, you, you released a statement, I'm not going to do a dramatic reading of it, but you released a statement in response to Chairman King's statement yesterday in which you talked about the positive record of accomplishment in the House. That you, you, you believe that when you walk away from this last session, that this last session reflects a positive record of accomplishment. I was proud of the House, yes, and I think we did, I think we have a good story to tell in our districts right. where, where we go to smaller districts than senators do, and certainly in the statewides, obviously. Yeah. Uh, we go home where people know us, and if we represented their interests and we tell that story, yep. they'll believe us, and they'll send us back. And so I think yep. I'm very confident about uh, the record of the House, and, I'm, and right. I applaud the members, whether they agreed with me on every issue or not, as long as they did what they right. thought they should do, their constituents will reward them. So speaking of not agreeing with you on issues, I want to ask you about, as it relates to the session specifically, effectively your three sets of Critics. The Freedom Caucus was a persistent source of criticism of the speaker. You know who these guys are? Who are the other two? Oh, I'm. I'll, I'll get there. Um, these were twelve. These are twelve members, very conservative, generally accepted to be the most conservative members of the House. And it seemed occasionally from the outside that the eighty-three were more often than not bending in the direction of the twelve, much more so than the numbers would have suggested. Do you believe that characterization is true? I think it, it's an issue-by-issue issue thing. Do you have any beef I, with them? Do you think that, are they le legitimate in their, it's like perfectly fine, whatever they think, that's it? You don't have a problem with them? I wish, I wish those 12 or so would expend their uh, energy trying to help us get a school finance reform bill passed. Well, one of the 12, uh, one of the 12 voted for, <laughs> voted for Chairman Huberty's school finance bill. Not, not, not all 12, but one of the 12. You wish the other 11 would get on board. I just wish they'd channel their energies toward more positive and productive pursuits. Right. So you... <laughs> You don't want to spend more time with Stickland? <laughs> Look, he's very good at getting attention, and um, he probably doesn't even need me for you that. You just gave him more attention. Wait a minute. You, you mentioned his name. Yeah, I kind of did. That's right. It's like Beetlejuice. I say his name three times, and just like, he'll suddenly come barreling down the aisle. Um, you, you, asked, you asked about who the other critics were. Well, you don't have to answer. I'm no, I'm going to answer. Okay. The second critic rhymes with Dan Patrick. Oh. The lieutenant, I mean, I have seen over, this is my 13th session at the Capitol. I'm by no means the most veteran veteran. I've been here for a little while, longer than some, not as long as others. I've seen tension between speakers and lieutenant governors before. Ain't never seen anything like this. It was Mayweather McGregor, but I didn't have to pay to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it was a little weird, I have to admit. 
Does, do you not like him? Does he not like you? What's going on? Well, he says he likes me, but it's kind of hard to really believe it. Do you like him? Yeah, sure, why not? I found some. I I'm found not exactly some, sure I, you just swiped some, right. I don't know that that. Uh, I found. I found some of the some of the late late night eruptions not terribly friendly sounding. Can you get Can you get along with him for the good of the state of Texas? Of course, and we have. Yeah. Are you going to endorse him next year? I would be shocked if he would ask. I didn't ask you if he would ask. I asked you if you'd do it. I asked you if you would do it either if he asked or if he didn't ask, would you volunteer to, to uh, endorse? I'd have to assess what the impact of that would be. If, 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 if he asked you for the benefit of his re-election campaign to endorse his opponent, would you do that? <laughs> That's probably more likely. Okay. The third critic, and I have to say that it's a little surprising to be acknowledging this, is Governor Abbott. Governor Abbott kind of talked smack about you after the special session was over. And he, he more or less put on you the fact that he didn't go 20 for 20. What do you think about that? I think that um, deep down he knows that the House has delivered for him on yeah. every one of his major items in both regular sessions and half of his agenda in the special session. He should claim victory and move on. Yeah, he did the first day after the session. But, but, but not on the second day. Um, I mean, he, you, you heard the same things I heard. He specifically called you out. He called out the House. He said, this is, this is not the way this should have happened. Well, as much as we respect and have delivered yeah. on major priorities of the governors, the House has priorities too. And the House does not work for the governor. So... Do you believe the governor played a constructive role during this session? I, I will tell you that I walked up and down Congress Avenue a lot during the last part of the session, and I would have not Democrats but Republicans stop me, and we'd be talking about Governor Abbott, and they would say, you mean Governor Absent? They felt that the governor had not sufficiently inserted himself into the conversation at key moments during the regular session where some of the trouble that came up could have been avoided. And this was people on the right as well as we heard, of course, some of that from people on the left. Well, Is that a fair critique? I don't think so. The, um, the, the real, thinking back to what really caused the need for a special session was over a, a routine nothing bill, one that was required to keep the government function, functioning. But it wasn't a bill that required the governor to be engaged. It was a continuation of the medical board. Right. That, that was not the governor's fault. But that, you know, was, yeah. that was an intentional... Right. Uh, you know, strategic decision that the lieutenant governor made in concert with, um, with, his, with, his, with his caucus in the House. Oh, you're now referring to it as the Patrick Caucus? Well, I think even they have said so. Um, you, you understand that, uh, Mr. Speaker, I'm referring, when I talk about the governor's involvement, I'm not talking about with the medical board. I'm going back yeah. to the so-called Chris Patty Amendment on the bathroom bill, when there was apparently, it seemed from the outside, a deal struck that it was going to be a slimmed-down version of the slimmed-down version of the bathroom bill. And the House passed it, and the understanding, at least on the outside, was that the governor was on board with that, and that the House was going to look to the governor to say so, and that then we were going to move on from this issue, but that actually didn't happen. I'm wondering, should the governor have interceded in fights earlier in the session on that issue or other issues that might have caused the trajectory of the session to go differently? Well, I think on the, on the issues that um, are required to be passed, the things that the state government has to do and the legislature has to do, yes. passing a balanced budget, in this case with a serious budget shortfall without raising taxes, he was engaged in those discussions and we got it done. To your satisfaction, he was sufficiently yeah, sure. engaged in that We session. got it done and he was right. part of the discussions and signed the budget and right. many other bills too. I mean, he got all of his major priorities passed. Uh, the House and Senate delivered for him. Uh, the Senate got a number of their priorities e passed and the ethics, House did too. Ethics-ish, right? Yeah. Ish. No, we did, you know, some. Right. But um, I mean, all yeah. in all, the, the regular session was, was perfectly acceptable, did a lot of good things. Yeah. And, um, and I think whether the governor was all over every issue or he wasn't, he was involved and, and, um, and appropriately involved where he needed to be to help yeah. get us 
get the major things across the, the finish line. Will you endorse him for re-election? Well, that would be a different question, of course. Yeah, sure. Imagine. Yeah, not, <laughs> but, no, but no, I don't know if he'll ask. I so hope he, he asks. He doesn't have to ask you, in other words, in this, like, like the lieutenant governor. Oh, look, I, yeah. I, I, um, I don't think it matters. But, yeah, I mean, sure, I'm going to support, I'm gonna support our, our incumbents. Will you support every incumbent House member? I'll support the Republican House members who, um, who are constructive, who are helping, um, who are helping to address the major challenges facing our state. So you're going to pick and choose. You're going to pick winners and losers. Well, let's see who has a. Let's see who has races. Well, I, shall I name some people? We could just go, we could just go down the list right here. <laughs> so I start at the A's. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, you I'll, have I'll members. Be, the, look, you're going to have some Freedom Caucus gonna, members who are going to have challengers from the I'm left. Gonna, are you going to support the challengers? I'm going to do what I've always done, which is to support those who need it the most, who are having challengers because they have been constructive right. problem solvers. So but you'll support Byron Cook against Mr. McNutt? That you can count on. You'll support, um, you'll support Wayne Faircloth over Mays Middleton? Wayne's done a good job in the House, okay. and he's done some good things for his district. He's right. He's somebody who pays very close attention to the right. concerns of his voters. But if and Matt Rinaldi were to draw Bennett Ratliff again in Irving, would you support Bennett Ratliff? Would you support Matt Rinaldi, or would you keep your powder dry? I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's a challenger in that race. But if there were a challenger, Mr. Speaker, <laughs> follow me down this path. Would you... Uh... I, think, I think we've gone quite far enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet you do. All right. Before we go to questions from the audience, and we will, help, we will go to questions, we have microphones at, at both aisles. Um, I want to ask you, on, on a more serious turn to where the interim uh, finds us, how is Harvey going to change the interim? It seems like whatever happened over the last seven months, the last paragraph of the story is forget all that, because yeah. Harvey has changed everything from a budget standpoint and a non-budget standpoint. Can you reflect on that? You're right. Harvey has changed everything. Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever any of us thought the, or had hoped that this, the um, agenda for the next session would be, it's going to be overtaken by Mother Nature. Yeah. And, um, and, and um, I think the, I want to say that the governor's work in responding to this um, catastrophe has been, has been good and, and commendable. And um, the president and the Congress, I don't often say this, have come to our aid, and they've done it quickly, and I yep. give them all high marks for that. It needs to continue. Um, but it's going to be a, a very, um, it's going to be the biggest challenge that we face. I think this interim period is going to be the most challenging one uh, in any of our memories. Um, and and that's, not to, that's not to say that some of the, the big issues, like school finance reform, um, some of the, the budget holes that we left in terms of Medicaid, and um, delaying payments or transportation, they just, those don't go away. Well, in fact, they may look in retrospect, who knew this was going to happen? But it, it, it may look in retrospect like that was a bad decision because now the holes that were left are now going to be that much bigger or blown open by the additional costs that you had not anticipated. Well, right. it's going to be a challenge, but we'll be able to deal with it. Right. And I don't we'll want to be, go, and, yeah. and we'll be able to deal with, right. the, with the Harvey issues, too, once we know specifically what they, what, are, what they are and what the state's responsibility is. But right. there is um, some flexibility in our current budget. Um, Can you explain that? I, I, I've been, I don't want to go all Gene Wu on you here, but there is this, que- <laughs> there is this question about the rainy day fund, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, why, I mean, literal rain fell, right? It sure did. And why, and why optically, optically... There's a question, what on earth are you saving this money for if not this? Well, we and don't, I understand there's an answer to that. Yeah, well, we don't, we, number one, we don't know what, what the state's requirement is yet. Right. Um, and number two, in the short term, there's some flexibility in the existing appropriations. The governor has over $100 million in his disaster relief fund. Yep. He has the authority to move money from agency to agency as needed. Uh, in a way that we can come and backfill later. So, so basically, you don't use the rainy day fund now. You don't call for a special session in order to unlock those dollars, which you would need to do because it's two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate. But from a procedural standpoint, 
You spend the money anyway, and then you come back in 2019, and at that point, you backfill with that very same rainy day fund money. That's certainly a possibility. That's and, the possibility. And, and, and not unlikely. And do you have any concern that the same people who would oppose use of the rainy day fund now will oppose it then? Do you worry that that's going to happen? Could you possibly find yourself left with a check, basically, in 2019? I have confidence that um, out of respect for the way Texans have responded to other Texans in need after Harvey, right. that the legislature will do everything that is necessary and proper to take care of this. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to go to questions. Uh, if, if uh, Well, no, we have microphones. So if you don't mind, if people have questions, go to the microphones. I will go left, right, left, right. We'll call on as many people as possible, try to get to as many questions as possible. And when 9 o'clock, whatever, 9.30, pardon me, 9.30 comes, we're going to have to end to keep the program moving. Please don't make speeches, ask questions. I will bust you if you make a speech. <laughs> Only person who gets to make a speech here is me. So, okay. <laughs> sir. Okay, I'm uh, David Brockman with the Baker Institute for Public Policy. Yes, sir. And uh, there was a time when the Republican Party in Texas was the business party, basically. It really supported business. And it would have been surprising, to say the least, to see uh, Republicans go uh, so strongly against the business community as they did with this last session with uh, bathrooms, with public school finance, with immigration, and so forth. And I'm wondering, do you think that the Texas uh, GOP, um, at least factions of it, have, have lost their way? Yeah. As it relates to that specifically, as, are, you, as are you still the party of business? I think we're in danger of getting away from that, and I think that would be, um, I think that would be a terrible mistake. Um, government doesn't create jobs, the private sector does. Um, belief in free market, free enterprise has always been a bedrock foundation of the Republican Party. Fiscal restraint, um, but also support for education and for doing what's necessary to, to assist in growing jobs is appropriate. And um, I do think that, that factions of the Republican Party um, are in danger of uh, damaging that reputation. And I, I'm one who stands pretty strongly to try to prevent that from happening. Okay. Sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, Speaker Strauss, every time I read the Texas Tribune, I just feel like a hot little potato, and I just get so angry at what's going on in the House. How do you keep like such a cool cucumber like you are? <laughs> Well, Pot mainly, potatoes mainly and cucumbers. Because, awesome. I'm now hungry. This is mainly, good. Mainly because I know what real stresses are. Um, and I know that for individuals in Texas, not just politicians, real stresses are when you have a, a loved one in the hospital, you, somebody who has um, not sure you can pay for your child's education. Um, you have a family member with a mental health issue. Uh, those are real stresses. Real stresses aren't whether House Bill 98 is going to pass committee or not. So I keep it in perspective. And uh, we've had, what, 85 sessions of the legislature and a whole bunch of special sessions. And we haven't ruined the state yet. <laughs> Sir. Considering the implied tensions between the Democrats and you personally, um, as well as the fact that you're running for a sixth term, which one do you believe is more important, voicing the opinions that are popular amongst legislation as well as the general population, or doing what you believe is right? Believing, doing what you believe is right always should come number one, but politics, if you're going to do it at any level of success, you have to find a balance which doesn't mean you give up your beliefs or principles, but you do have to find a balance knowing that your beliefs and principles aren't the only ones that count. Sir. Mr. Speaker, Dennis Borrell, Coalition of Texans with Disabilities. This month, the Health and Human Services Commission announced that uh, the cost of maintaining a single individual for one year in a state-supported living center is now $349,000. A lot of that is due to we haven't shrunk the size of the network over the last 25 years while 70, with the 70% decline in census. Is it time to look at right-sizing the size of that network, achieve some savings, and move those to address the long waiting list for community services? We'll certainly take a look at that. I appreciate you. 
raising that issue. Yeah. You're willing to look at that? Of course. Great. Good. Sir. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I read during the session was the piece called America's Futurist Texas. And I especially remember the part where you described, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but essentially that the hey, House... why not? Been... Everybody else has. <laughs> Fair enough. Essentially the part where you noted the House has sort of acted as a foil to the Senate and the governor, and that you were worried mm -hmm. that that might make it less effective in that role in the future and make the Senate even more um, of its characteristics than it already has. So what I'm wondering is, at the point where the House is often seen as sort of a bastion of the business faction of the Republican Party and the more moderate faction, how the House can move away from that role in future sessions? Well, I think the House is conservative. I think any, characteriz any characterization of the House's performance in my time um, as anything other than a conservative body is not correct. Um, I do think we try to be thoughtful. We play through a process where, as I mentioned earlier, uh, bills have to be considered many times before they can be passed. Yep. And I think that's good. So I'm not, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. I think the House is going to continue um, to conduct ourselves the way we have. L but let but me, it, is a conservative, yeah. it is a conservative body that passes conservative legislation. Let me, let me go at that question maybe just to try to help point it in the right. So one theory is that the House pays attention to what the Senate does and reacts to what the Senate does. Another theory is that the House does what the House thinks it needs to do and does not pay attention to the Senate. You play golf, not tennis, right? Is that what the House is responding? Mean, and I think yeah, in, I mean, in some we, ways we, the House doing what the House does without regard to the Senate, you don't care what the Senate does or what the Senate's influence is. You do what's right for the House. Well, we care. Yeah. We care. We have to, as the Senate knows, the House knows, that no bill passes without each chamber approving it. Right. There's got to so, be some relationship. But it doesn't mean that our priorities are matching exactly. Sir. Um, beginning uh, about six weeks ago with your own home county in Bear, over 50 Republican county executive committees have formally issued resolutions of no confidence in your leadership. Um, you are also coming up in the next Bear County meeting, there's going to be a resolution to consider formally censoring you under Rule 44 of the Republican Party of Texas. What is your reaction to these developments? Well, my first reaction, <clears throat> thank you for the flattering question, but my first... Well, that, my would first, be, that would be your first reaction. My first reaction, Second. no, my, my real reaction is yeah. that, um, that when I place my hand on the Bible and I raise my right hand the first day of the session, I pledge to uphold the Constitution of the United States and of this state and not any party convention's platform. Now, now, that, that is not to say that in the Bear County Republican Party, of which I was a precinct chairman for a number of years and on the management committee, uh, that a very small faction of the precinct chairs met recently and um, on a handwritten last-minute piece, you know, last-minute note piece of paper, passed something because they knew they had just enough votes in that small group um, of people who are not my friends. We'll see how October goes. Um, I would be disappointed if my friends in Bear County, who in the last uh, the voters in the last primary, re-elected me by a 32-point margin. So I'm very I'm very confident that the Republican voters I represent strongly support me. And I hope that uh, the precinct chairman, of which I was one once uh, one, will support me as well. And I think they will. And a vote of no confidence from your home county GOP would not cause you to think differently about running for re-election or for speaker? I don't think it's going to happen. Okay. I think, I think um, if you get a large enough group of Republicans together, they support me very strongly, just as the voters did by a 32-point margin in the last primary. Sir. Hello. Um, Speaker Strass, you've enjoyed a lot of success in the House, especially with your, your number of consecutive terms as a speaker, and you're very well-respected amongst Republicans and Democrats um, in the state, and 
you can always tell from this room, we respect you a lot. And I'm just curious that in the future, whenever Greg Abbott decides it's time to put up shop, are you ever, in, are you ever interested in uh, running for governor someday? Um, well, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, as I said, I'm not going to serve as speaker forever. I am interested in, in helping um, in public office or in private life, um, helping solve the big challenges that face the state. Wherever I can do it the best, I'd be interested in doing that. But I, You're I, holding um, the door, Mr. Speaker, you're holding the door open. No, I mean, I think it's so, it's so speculative. And I'm, well, but you not, didn't say no. Well, no, I mean, I think I believe, I believe in public service, but I also believe that public service can be done in private life. Um, right, but you understand, Mr. Speaker, very often people are asked, would you consider running for higher office? And they say no. Like I asked Al Franken last night, you want to run for president? He said, nope, I don't want to be president. Do you want to be governor? I don't want to be Al Franken. <laughs> the, the statesman now has its headline. That's great. Um, Okay. Good morning, Mr. Speaker. Good you morning. spoke uh, briefly about uh, the criticisms you face when it comes to appointing committee chairs that specifically agree with you. Yeah. Uh, another aspect of your criticisms in the past have been your actions as presiding officer, specifically playing what some characterize as fast and loose with parliamentary procedure. Would you speak a little bit to those criticisms this last session and whether they were valid and what your response to them is? Is that in any way a legitimate criticism? No, I don't think so at all. We call, call the balls and strikes as as our parliamentarian advises me. I mean, you... So just as don't, you don't, don't control the... Just as you don't control the flow of legislation, your stipulation is that you don't control those calls. That's... No, I don't. The parliamentarian... I'm not, I'm not competent to. That stuff, that stuff is complicated and, way, and over my head. Yeah. So when points of order are respectfully declined or are upheld, that is, that is not coming out of your pocket. I take the advice of of the people that are up there who are deeply knowledgeable in, in the rules and the process. Yeah. Should there be a replay booth, like in football, <laughs> where they get a challenge? They, there was a challenge this year. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, was, it, there it, was in the Senate as well. It does happen. Ma'am. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm Rebecca Belmetro, and I run for State Board of Education a few times. I wanted to know uh, what can Democrats do to help you in the areas that we have in common uh, without hurting your reputation? <laughs> would you, ra it, would it's you probably, rather they just didn't come near you? Is anyone that anyone who has served five terms as Speaker of the House has no reputation to, to uh, be too worried about. Um, no, I think, um, speak your mind. Work, work for your priorities. As I said, I'm, I'm not a Democrat. I'm a proud, lifelong Republican. We know that. But I, but I, <laughs> but I, welcome, I welcome you to the conversation, and I don't, think every, I don't think every Republican is right about everything. I don't think every Democrat's wrong about everything. So I think the system works better when you invite everybody to the table and you try to come up with, um, with good solutions to the serious challenges and not get, not get uh, distracted by some of these wedge issues that are really meant to divide people. Ma'am. Speaker, this question is about redistricting. Um, the House Redistricting Committee this year, led by Cindy Burkett, despite three federal courts finding that we have uh, racially discriminatory districts drawn, refused to hold a single hearing. Obviously, there's been some change in that with mm -hmm. the Supreme Court uh, temporary stay on this, though we probably won't get that done by 2018. But it seemed that there was every reason to at least hold hearings on it. And I know that there was a fair amount of public um, requests and outcry asking for it. When we have situations where there is a committee tasked with doing a specific job that will not do it, what can we as constituents do beyond calling, which appears to have no effect, to yeah. encourage them to do their job? It, it's a little weird. You appoint a chair, you have a committee, and they don't meet? Well, we typically, typically, uh, more, in my memory, more often than not, the redistricting committee doesn't meet. So why have it? In case they need to. Um, you don't think that three federal courts saying that we had racially drawn districts was a need? I don't, think that, I don't think there was a redistricting bill that would have had any chance of a serious um, consideration in the House 
for there to have been hearings on. The vice chairman of the committee, also your appointee, Eric Johnson of Dallas, wrote several letters and made several public statements imploring the House and imploring the chair specifically to meet. You read his letter on the Confederacy. Did you read his letter on the redistricting committee? I'm sure I did. I, read, yeah. I try to read all the letters from members. Yeah. Um, but again, I think the courts are working through this, as you said. And uh, it may be an issue that comes back. It may be an issue that doesn't come back until the next regular redistricting. Let me ask you a question. Uh, is Texas drawing legislative lines in a discriminatory fashion, yes or no? I would never say yes to something like that. I would hope not, not intentionally. I thought maybe you were distracted. Yeah. Um, You're the one with the cell phone over there, not I'm, texting. I, I, I'm respecting your time, Mr. Speaker. I want to I'm, make sure we don't go I, uh, over. Yeah. No, I think yeah. the, an the answer is no, certainly yeah. not intentionally, but we'll, yeah. we'll abide by what the courts give us. Mr. Speaker, you mentioned that it's a stressor having a loved one in a hospital. I agree with you. Um, do you think that it's unacceptable that we have a law in Texas that states that an unelected hospital committee can remove life-sustaining treatment from a patient against their will. Uh, what, didn't we address that, that issue in the last We've addressed session? parts of it. We've addressed that you can no longer put unilateral DNRs on a patient. You can no longer withdraw food and water, but you can still withdraw with dialysis and a ventilator, other life-sustaining treatment. Thank you. I know that, I know that the DNR issue was resolved at least legislatively to our best ability uh, recently, but it's not, it's not a policy area that I'm um, deeply knowledgeable about. Mr. Speaker, you'll be happy to know that we're done. <laughs> that does make me happy. I'm not so happy. Thank you very much for being thank here. You. Give Speaker Joe Strauss a hand. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Mr. you. Speaker, thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate it.